Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, as we continue our adventures through the virtual looking glass of Zoom, we're going to go actually through a looking glass, kind of, because we're going over to an Alice in Wonderland film. Uh, The specific film is uh, the one I would refer to as the big one, uh, the 1951 Disney animated Alice in Wonderland. And as always, we have someone who has seen the film and someone who has not, our guest who has not seen this film on the occasion of its 70th birthday and indeed 70th unbirthday, it is Aaron Vanderclay. Hello, yes, I'm back having not seen another film. It's it's crazy. What's the point of a film degree, eh? Well, you <laughs> actually make films, Aaron. Uh, I will I will throw that one out there. Yes, you're right. I'm too busy yeah. to watch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Aaron, it's been a while since we've had you on. How, how are things in the world of um, uh, short filmmaking here in uh, Australia? It's, it's great, to be honest. You sort of live in fear that anything you do might be cancelled because of the lockdown. But I've been pretty lucky in that I've managed to keep working uh, and keep making stuff. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I hear tell there is perhaps another uh, surely award-winning uh, Star Trek short film uh, being prepared at the moment. Yes, yes. Uh, I just put a casting call out for the other day, actually, um, for my second uh, Star Trek Voyager era um, fan film. So, yeah, I'm really excited. The last one um, was so much fun to work on and uh, went down really well. So I'm keen to do another one. Excellent. I get three done this year. Right. Well, very ambitious. And just for the uh, the folks at home, if they're interested in seeing these, uh, where can they find them? Oh, okay. Um, so if you uh, you can look me up on Facebook, it's Aaron Vanderclay, uh, very long uh, surname. So good luck finding it. But yeah, if you, you if you type in Aaron and Star Trek fan film, you will find them. Online. Excellent. Well done, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, you have not seen this film. No, I haven't. Um, when I was a kid, I actually had an Alice in Wonderland like storybook, like the Disney storybook, which mm. I found extremely confusing. Um, but yeah, I have not seen it. I know it was another one of Walt Disney's like uh, like Mary Poppins. You know, he he read the the book as a kid, or you know, uh, he enjoyed reading it to his kids, and so he was really keen to make a a film version of it. Mm. Um, but yeah, other than that, I haven't seen it. Okay, so what are you expecting from uh, this this film? Um. I feel like it'd be, it's, it's quite an old, I can't remember what year it, it was. Uh, it was uh, 1951 was when it was released. Right. So it's, this is like early animation. Um, I know like people, there's like this whole psychedelic thing about it as well. So I, I imagine it's slightly mushroom inducing. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know what to expect. I'm excited though. Lovely. Well, uh, luckily for both of us, we have someone here uh, who has seen the film, and it is Dr. Carmen Doley. Hello, Stephen. How are you? I'm good, Dr. Carmen. Uh, uh, one of the rare doctors on our program who is a medical doctor. Um, yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, how is life in the world of medicine at the moment? Uh, life in the world of medicine is good. We're slowly getting through COVID vaccines. So, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's been very uh, rewarding uh, work for us to be doing. Excellent. And Alice in Wonderland. Now, I was mm. there, there wasn't going to be anyone else I was really going to get on for our first Alice in Wonderland film adaptation because uh, folks at home may not know, but Carmen has um, has a lot of thoughts on Alice in Wonderland, I guess. I don't, I don't quite know what, what label you would like in terms of your relationship with Alice. 
Yeah, I mean, I've always uh, said to Stephen that if I was going to write a PhD, it would be on uh, film adaptations of Alice in Wonderland and how they reflect the evolution of cinema as a whole. Um, so this one is, is quite an interesting one in that regard. Um, I think it's also um, interesting in that I do have quite a connection to this film in that I, when I used to work at Disney, I did a lot of work as a performer in a certain white rabbit fur that uh, involves standing in front of teacups and taking photos. So um, that was a lot of my work at Disney. So mm. a lot of this um, does bring back memories that are fond in that regard. Um, but this film, it's just not one that I watch for fun. Mm. <laughs> I don't like it. Oh. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to watch, but... Um, yeah, it's just it's just one of those Disney movies that I just find weird and sad, and um, it's beautiful. It, it's a beautiful film, but um, it, it's it's an iconic Disney film as well. Like you've got such a great voice cast and there's such great artwork, but the end product is just not one that I enjoy. Right. Okay. So, um, what what can um, people like Aaron who haven't seen this film what 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 can they expect aside from uh, potential sadness? <laughs> um, so you're fairly you're fairly on the mark with uh, mushroom trips. I think that's a that's a fair assessment. Um, lots of color, lots of music, uh, lots of really good voice acting, and just weird Disney experimentation, I guess. Excellent. Okay. Well, with all that being said, shall we watch Alice in Wonderland? Let's go yes. for it. Okay. For those of you listening at home, pop on those DVDs, load up those streaming services, and. Oh, hang on a sec, guys. We're late. We're actually really late. We're very, very late. No time to say hello, goodbye. We're late, we're late, we're late. We've got to watch Alice in Wonderland. Welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching Alice in Wonderland, the 1951 Disney animated version. I'm joined once again by my guests, Dr. Carmen Dolly. Hello. And Aaron Vanderclay. Hello. I was waiting for a doctorate as well. That's, that's pretty sad. <laughs> yeah. Now, as, as I understand, you you have to earn them. I'll, I'll tell you what, I can give you Doctor Who fan, Aaron Vanderclay. <laughs> Much better. <laughs> Aaron, that was your first time watching Alice in Wonderland. What did you think? I don't honestly do not know where to begin. What a <laughs> what an experience. I I don't know how to feel. It was just a lot of things happening that were nonsense. Mm. With some wit involved. I yeah, I don't yeah, I don't know how to how to feel. I think I can echo um, Carmen's thoughts before about this is not something that you would watch for enjoyment or like, I feel like watching Alice in Wonderland. It's just, uh, I've watched it because it's a thing to watch. Mm. And now I've done it mm. and I've, that's the tick off the list. Yeah, it's it's a very odd film. I think this was a film that must've been on, <clears throat> must've been on high rotation for me uh, as a youngster because I was getting a lot of like, early childhood memories uh, coming back of like the the house in England that I lived in and just little, from like little tiny snippets that I'd forgotten were in this film, like like the sentence, you know, we'll need a lizard with a ladder and those kind of things were all things that were reminding me of like things because my dad quoted this film 
a lot when we were little. And I think it was because of the the nonsense kind of thing, which as a child, um, I enjoyed and I imagine, you know, children like nonsense, children like that the fun othering of the rules. Um, and I think maybe that's part of the attraction of this particular version of Alice in Wonderland is even though it's weird and a bit um, mushroom trippy, as we discussed before, it it does feel as though it's it's still quite fun, Carmen. I was surprised how how fun this one felt, even though it's got its serious morose bits. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had fun in terms of sort of looking at it from a critical point of view. I mean, I, I guess I'm a bit different to you, Stephen, in that I I remember having this film on Betamax as a kid with some other uh, Disney films. Um, I don't remember enjoying it particularly mm. as a kid either. Like, I think, um, I, again, I just always found it that little bit disturbing, like Dumbo. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that sort of like Disney lulling you into a false sense of security mm. uh, kind of thing. It's like, oh, we're going to watch this sweet, wholesome narrative. And no, oh, my God, you were not expecting, uh, you know, all this dark, disturbing stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not, it, it's not an unpleasant film. You know, it's not, it's not like a mystery science theatre terrible film it's not it's not bad it's not unenjoyable it's just uh it's just never really something that's uh sort of struck me in any kind of nostalgic way or um anything like that really yeah i i don't think i i mean certainly before rewatching this i i've not had a burning desire to revisit this film like that as i have with others like when we did um snow white um in the, mm. in the first year of the podcast i was genuinely like I've not seen this film for a long time and I really want to go back and see how it holds up um with this film it was more of like I guess it was more of like an academic scientific uh curiosity than a than that connection um from from loving it as a youngster but but then re-watching it I am going oh yeah I remember I really loved this as a kid I loved the the mm. the unbirthday tea party scene because it's silly and it's it's breaking the rules but I, I think it's interesting because this is uh, obviously adapted from the book that they've really focused in on the nonsense aspect of the story and basically it's established very early on Alice is someone who is is bored in a history lesson and boy haven't we all been there uh, but is bored in a history lesson and she wants to to live in a nonsense world and we then get 70 minutes of her living in that nonsense world um and again and again it these these nonsensical things keep happening and it it struck me a lot more uh, um as a wizard of oz type there's no place like home narrative than i think it has in previous watchings to me yeah definitely um and it's it's interesting that you say about um her being bored in the history lesson um mm. and then wanting this world of nonsense because in the original book that that excerpt from the history book is actually said by a character in Wonderland at some point who's giving like a dry speech hoping to dry everyone off essentially. Mm. Um, so it's interesting that they've sort of taken that as being um, uh, sort of the boring, uh, uninteresting real world aspect, whereas that's actually not the case in the book at all. So mm. they're trying to, um, they're, they're sort of subverting that a bit and, and kind of twisting the way that the book was originally written. Um, I think it's interesting, as you say, with the with the narrative like the Wizard of Oz, um, because it's interesting the way they've structured this story in the in the original book. There's no sort of 
uh, sense of purpose that Alice has. She doesn't really have any sort of goal or any anything she wants to accomplish. She's just kind of wandering around and seeing things essentially. Um, whereas in in this version, it's it's much more that she wants to go home and she wants to get home and she's she's trying to work out how to get home. Mm. I think for me, I think that that is lo- where a lot of the um, I, I guess that a lot of the disturbing parts of it come from because I think it, it makes Alice a very vulnerable character. She's suddenly wanting to go home and suddenly almost very passive and helpless in a way that she isn't in the book. Mm. And so she's suddenly, you know, she's crying on a rock waiting for the Cheshire cat to come to her. Um, it, it's a much more sort of helpless child that we're seeing. Um, and I think that combined with all the nonsense and the ridiculousness and um, all the craziness that's going along on around her, it just, it just makes it um, uh, sort of, it gives me a very visceral response in that regard. Yeah. And I think it's, quite interesting as well that in the first half of this film I think she's a lot more like the book version where Mm. the drive to come home hasn't kicked in yet um Mm. that that really comes in like in the basically right at the halfway point of the film where they kind of go oh we need her to want something basically Mm. uh because she's just having a nice like when she speaks to Tweedledee and Tweedledum um she is like I don't particularly have anywhere to be I'm sort of just following the the white rabbit because I'm curious to see where he goes. Um, Aaron, there's a lot of really interesting small vignettes in this film. Um, It feels like it's just a film made of vignettes. Uh, What I would like to know from a first time viewer is, um, do any of them stand out in particular for good or for bad reasons? Are there any of those interactions with like Tweedledee and Tweedledum or the Caterpillar or the the Tea Party or are any of them ones that really stand out to you? Um, when I was watching it, and I commented this uh, in our little group chat, that Tweedledee and Tweedledum, I just had this memory of when I was being read the like storybook version as a kid of just being really frightened of them. They seemed like frightening yep. characters. Mm. And on what Carmen was saying about sort of Alice being vulnerable, it kind of jogged my memory as to what frustrated me as a kid was why on this journey when she was trying to get home, so many adult characters, I suppose, are so obstructive to her and um, are not helpful and don't behave in the way that as a child I was taught that you know if you're lost or whatever you go to an adult and they can help you Mm. and like that just just clicked with me then as to yeah especially with um, those specific characters and like I always thought the Mad Hatter was a villain and then to watch this and see that he's actually not Mm. a villain at all um, yeah that was really interesting Um, but I think to yeah, the Mad Hatter scene um, at the unbirthday party, that was another sort of visual um, sort of thing that, that stood out and the vignette that I found that interesting and the gag about the half a cup of tea and things like that. It was engaging to watch. I think that was the, mo- the most I was focused in this film was that scene. Yeah, I, I think the, the uh, ferocious pace that that scene goes at with all the offers, I guess, of like... Uh, observations or jokes or humor or um, just things happening that it throws at you um i think demands more of an attention than say the scene with the flowers um which is really beautifully animated and they do their their lovely um song um but you can sort of drift while you're watching that a little bit um and was there a song in that scene the mad had a scene 
uh, just like the, sort of have a rhyme, but they don't. They just don't the, just the that. very merry unbirthday is sort yeah. of the the main refrain, and they bring that back in. It's a short song. Uh, yeah, but but it's definitely. Um, I think it's just because it that that scene is so cacophonous and and mad um, that it that it the, the song almost gets lost in there. And I did find that Carmen with the music in this film that. Um, a lot of the music kind of sneaks up on you more than in other Disney films. Yeah, well, this is um, this is the Disney film actually with the most songs in it. I think from mm. memory it has 14 or 15 songs. It's a huge amount. Um, but the trouble is a lot of them, I think, as you say, they, they're just sort of very incidental or they kind of sneak in without you noticing. Um, I think a lot of them as well are based on stuff in the books. Mm. Like there's a little Jabberwocky song that the Cheshire Cat sings and things like that, but it's only very, very short verses. So again, it does tend to sort of slip by you in that regard. There's not a lot of songs that are particularly memorable, I feel like, in this. It's it, it it's one of the things that I found really interesting with this rewatch is just how unique the visuals are to this film. I, I really don't think mm. there is another Disney film that looks like Alice in Wonderland looks. There's elements like when the, I think it was Carmen, you said when the um, the guard cards came out and uh, it's a little bit yeah. like the Dumbo uh, elephants on parade sequence. Um, but aside from like that, and maybe like sort of model designs, which are a bit similar to character models for films around the same time, like Peter Pan, um, there's a certain style that's of its time, but I really can't think of um, a Disney film that is as unique looking as as Alice in Wonderland has ended up. Um, although if I've forgotten any, feel free to refresh me. No, I think, no. I think from like visually it's, it's lovely and to watch it in HD and to see how crisp the lines are in it mm. for a film of the 50s is incredible. Um, and I, I guess they had a lot of, a lot of um, visual gags to play on, I guess, translating it from a book to a film. Um, I really liked the, the rocking horse fly mm. and the bird that has a cage as its body. Um, <laughs> I thought that was really cool. There's a lot of wit in it. Mm. Um, and like the birds that are rowing boats instead of flying. I was like, what the? Yeah. But yeah. Because of course yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of that is um, uh, thanks to an artist by the name of Mary Blair, who uh, did a lot of um, work for Disney over the years. She, So I think she started at, at Disney sort of in the 40s and then stopped working for them and then came back um, because Walt Disney just liked her work outside of Disney so much. Um, you see a lot of her work, um, like particularly the, the Caterpillar bit, I feel like is, is very much her work, um, whereas it's sort of very modernist and very... Uh, sort of patterns and colours and, and very um, contrasting sharp colours as well. Um, so you kind of see that and it's it's interesting sort of looking at it and then looking at her other work like It's a Small World because you can so sort of see like the similarities in the design of this and sort of the design of It's a Small World as well. It, it's, um, uh, yeah, just that, that very sharp, very modern kind of pattern look. And I don't think Disney had really been doing anything like that up until this point. I feel like this was a really um, very much a seminal film in that regard. And then, you know, Disney started to experiment more with different visual styles based on Alice in Wonderland. You know, you start to see things like Sleeping Beauty where um, it's just very, very different uh, sort of animation shapes and, and patterns and colours and things like that that they start to branch out and experiment more. Mm. 
Yeah, the film's uh, story sort of kicks in in the final 20 minutes um, where Alice uh, is introduced to the Queen, the Cheshire Cat. It says, oh, go see the Queen. Um, and we we meet the playing cards, painting the roses red, and then we see this tyrannical Queen character who um, I think of all the non-Alice characters in, in this film is, for me, the one I found the most engaging. Uh, maybe because she was the least nonsensical like there was a certain she made sense in that she was a tyrant basically who <laughs> just sort of imposed her will even though she would occasionally join in like with the unbirthday uh, as soon as someone mentioned it she was like it's my unbirthday too and then they all had a big party which was fun um but but I I found her just really quite compelling and again going back to to childhood very scary I think if she was probably one of the Disney villains that scared me the most because she was just so freely open with how angry she was yeah and you kind of didn't know what she was going to do next in a way that was different to the other characters and the other characters it was just sort of nonsense but in a non-malice way I suppose whereas this mm. was like death mm. yeah a lot of uh, a lot of off with their heads um which is just a great line for a villain to have just as a catchphrase <laughs> it's like yep that's that's pretty nasty uh and and of course in the end uh, they have the trial which the trial i'd completely forgotten about from from when i'd last watched this film um and bringing back characters from the tea party and uh, essentially just just culminating in this big chase sequence where alice does eventually make it back out into the real world because she realizes that she's sleeping in the real world and she returns and what I really like um, about this film and about films from this time is it just ends. Uh, it, it basically just goes and done. What? No, no, there's no conclusion. There's no epilogue. It's literally just as soon as you hear the the singing chorus in the background going, oh, you know, oh, we are like 30 seconds from the end. We've got a hard out. Um, and I, I don't know if it felt weird, Aaron, as a first time viewer, that the film just ended like that, though. I feel like a lot of films parts of that era and I feel like potentially other Disney films of that era kind of end like that as well mm. um, uh, Dumb, so Dumbo yeah, she, she, yeah she is a bit like okay let's go mm. oh, okay yeah it's very odd yeah but welcome well <laughs> but welcome yeah yeah I, su I suppose Aaron as the, as the first time viewer did, did you enjoy Alice in Wonderland I don't think I found it as engaging as I wanted to mm. Um, there were bits of it that caught me and certainly like like we said with like visual gags and like the sort of wit of it I think you mentioned Stephen in our chat the one where the, the, his, the king is like and I'm the king and someone's like woo <laughs> that was just the most Monty Python gag that mm. I burst out laughing it was just that those things like that <laughs> caught my attention but yeah. yeah as for enjoyment I don't think this was something that I enjoyed Okay, I, that's fair. And uh, Carmen, for yourself, uh, when did you last watch this film, actually? I was thinking about that. I think it, it honestly must have been before I was working for Disney, so it would have been a good 12 years ago, I feel like. Mm. And not much has changed. I, I don't feel any different watching it this time than I really do remember feeling the last time I watched it. Yeah, I, yeah, I was, I, I was pleasantly surprised in parts, but... Mm. but it, I'm glad that it is not a terribly long film um, 
because and I think that's maybe a problem that I had well one of the problems that I had with the Tim Burton uh, 2010 version is I feel as though that version just just loses a lot of the joy of Wonderland like it's meant to be a wondrous place and I don't feel as though the Tim Burton version captured that wonder in the way that this Disney version did because as as mm. not nice as parts of the 51 version of the film are it did feel wondrous like the 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 nature and all the, the you know the birds and animals that are shaped like horns or you know rocking horse flies or glasses with legs that jump on your face like that that was whether you liked it or not it was wondrous and I, I yeah I feel as though this film got that whereas the the um Burton version sadly is is lacking a lot of that for me yeah I feel like uh, Disney really told the animators to just go to town and just concept art whatever you feel like basically and a lot of that ended up in this film mm. uh, which nothing, is good nothing to is a wrong decision yeah <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yes uh, would you guys like some trivia about Alice in Wonderland yes please yes Okay, all of this trivia is sourced from IMDb, so if it's not true, don't blame me. Uh, the first bit of trivia we have um, is to do with the live-action references for the Mad Tea Party. So for this film, uh, as I'm sure you already know, Carmen, um, they got the they got actors, um, usually the voice actors, to perform as the characters they were playing so the animators would have a reference so um alice in particular was was referenced very closely to her uh, voice actor um so while they were filming the live action reference scenes for the mad tea party edwin ad-libbed the speech where the mad hatter tries to fix the watch including mustard don't let be silly um what <laughs> uh, which is quite fun. Uh, Walt Disney was watching the filming and told the animators apparently, quote, hey, that stuff's pretty funny. Why don't you use that speech in the movie? End quote. Uh, the animators objected, saying that they couldn't use it. There's too many background noises. Reportedly, Disney smiled and told them, quote, that's your problem, end quote, and walked out of the room. Eventually, with a lot of labour, the Disney sound technicians managed to re-record Wynn's dialogue and erase the background noises so that the ad-libs could be used in the final film. The original live footage of this still exists and is in the bonus materials section on the DVD of this film. I'm going to watch say, that on YouTube right now. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is on YouTube, I think, the whole thing. Because I was going to say, I, I remember watching that, that bit on the, um, the live-action reference and I do remember um, when we watched the film this time, I was like, the audio does sound a little bit different there. Mm. And it, it's almost like they recorded it on a different day or something, but that makes total sense now what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think, I think it is all on YouTube. What did you guys think of Edwin? I, I'm a big fan of that voice and it is one that I <laughs> have used for characters um, in, in improv shows all the time. And uh, for me, I thought it was absolutely perfect for this version of the Mad Hatter to have someone that was so just outrageous, I guess. Uh, and in the yeah. world of Wonderland, for you to be have Mad as part of your name, you really do have to be quite outrageous. So I, I thought Edwin was a really good fit. Yeah, I think he, he, he has like a bit of a stereotypical sort of casting type. Mm. So I just thought of like him in um, Mary Poppins' Uncle Albert. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Mm. Yeah, because I find that people really tend to love or hate him and love and hate that voice, mm. um, which for me, like, I, I can understand why people find that voice creepy sometimes. Um, maybe, as you say, uh, Aaron, you know, that association with Mary Poppins 
you know, I love that movie. So maybe that's, that's why I don't mind his voice. But I mean, for me, um, I think I, I like Edwin as well, because unlike many people of his time, he didn't do racial humor at all. Mm. Like he didn't do any blackface or any kind of racial stereotypes. And I think that was a, a big point in his favor that he, he more just sort of focused on being silly rather than um, mm. uh, being hurtful. And I think he's a, he's a great fit for this film. Mm. I, I think you're right. There is a real sort of harmless quality to what he brings to particularly the Mad Hatter. Um, and again, it's, it's a great voice and one that I have shamelessly stolen for many a, a show <laughs> and character. And uh, it, a really great way to liven up the Shakespeare script reading. If you're reading like three or four characters for a Shakespeare thing, just make one of them Edwin. It's it, honestly, it's great doing anything in Shakespearean. Um, I might not get you to do that for Clue, though. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'll, 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 I'll try. I'll try my best not to. <laughs> oh, uh, for those of you who don't know, Stephen is uh, playing Wadsworth in our uh, in our version of Clue at Mobile Theatre to go up in September. Yes. So uh, yes. I'm, I'm desperately learning lines between podcasts at the moment. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll steer away. Still from, early days. It's still early days, but I'll steer away from yeah. an Edwin version uh, of, okay, of Wadsworth. Yeah. I want to do a film now, just where you play. A character as Edwin, frankly, I thought that was a beautiful, beautiful impersonation. Thank you. So. Yeah, just <laughs> just walking into the stage of Clue, going, "Oh, but not to do or die." Like, <laughs> just be. No, nope. I, I think after an hour that would get quite grating. Uh, certainly, <laughs> my microphone just said it was not happy with that. So. <laughs> Uh, the next bit of trivia, uh, Lewis Carroll wrote the riddle, why is a raven like a writing desk, as nonsense. It has no discernible answer, or at least none that he intended. Um, this has not stopped people um, from trying to find that answer, despite being told there wasn't one. Uh, among the popular suggestions are because Edgar Allan Poe wrote on both, which is, you know, not bad. It's not a bad one. Um, and also because the notes for which they are noted are not noted for being musical notes. Now, that second one is uh, similar to a solution that Carol himself suggested when he grew tired of people asking him about it and pretended to come up with an answer. I think my favourite um, answer for it, I think there was a, a newspaper competition that asked people to submit answers for it. Um, and my favourite one was uh, because there's a B in both and an N in neither. Mm. Yeah, that was a very, uh, very Lewis Carroll-esque answer. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, I like that one. I'm going to jot that one down. Um, <laughs> continuing the pattern of film versions of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland not being commercially successful, this movie was a huge box office failure. Uh, but it did become something of a cult film during the 60s, where it was viewed as a head film. Several years later, it became the Disney Studios' most requested 16mm film rental title for colleges and private individuals. So in 1974, the studio took note of this, withdrew the rental prints, and reissued the film nationally themselves. Uh, which I think maybe speaks to the fact, uh, as, as we've mentioned before, that this film has a little bit of a following uh, amongst the um, hallucinogenics community, I guess. For sure. <laughs> Mm. It's interesting, though, that no real uh, financial success has ever come of an Alice in Wonderland adaptation, I don't think, except for maybe Tim Burton's one, which is a bit sad. Yeah. I mean, I remember that just being advertised all over the place, though, back in 2010. Yeah, like, like yeah. they true. really went to town. And also, you know, at a, a reasonably 
big name cast. Uh, obviously, um, Johnny Depp is the Mad Hatter. You had people like Stephen Fry and Alan Rickman doing voice work for mm. various characters. And I, I but yeah, I, I do remember also, you know, it's it's Tim Burton and he's weird and it's Alice in Wonderland and that's the weird one. It's got to work, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but yeah, sadly, this one was not not massive hit financially. Um it At was ha- until LSD came along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just waiting, waiting for the right audience, the right yep. high audience. <laughs> uh, this was the first Disney theatrical film to be shown on television, though. Uh, in 1954, it was shown as the second installment of the Magical World of Disney TV show. It was edited down to fit into the one-hour time slot. Okay. Hmm. Which I feel like, with what you were saying, Stephen, about how it was almost presented like small vignettes, you could very easily lop a couple of those out and mm. stick it back together and carry on. So yeah, I mean, if it's yeah, if you're using that full hour, you only need to trim out 18 minutes. Um, that's 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 manageable, I'd say. Um, in addition to providing the voice, Catherine Beaumont, uh, who played Alice also served as the live-action model for Alice. Uh, the live-action reference scenes were filmed on a Disney soundstage with Beaumont wearing an Alice dress. For scenes where the giant Alice was stuck in the White Rabbit's house, the stage technicians at Disney built a scale model of the house and had Beaumont sit inside it. But animator Eric Larson said they needed to see how Alice's body moved when she was inside the house in order to properly animate her. So the stage technicians rebuilt the house as a frame house with transparent walls so the animators could study how Beaumont moved while inside the house. It was, um, Jason was watching uh, the film with me at that point. And he was like, oh, what a great cosplay that would be, Alice inside the house. I'm like, mm, very uncomfortable. Yeah, you'd be, um, you'd be waddling around a lot with your arms stuck out, but... Yeah, 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 not a lot of mobility there. Um, oh. But yeah, it was interesting how um, they did use the voice actors a lot in the 50s uh, for live action reference as well. Um, because it, the back, like earlier, they used to use different people for voices and live action. Um, like in Snow White, it was two different people, but then they started using the same people in the 50s. And it's really interesting to actually go back and see the footage because sometimes it's almost identical. It's almost like they've rotoscoped it essentially. Mm. Um, and a lot of it is on YouTube if you're so inclined to watch it. Okay. The English novelist uh, Aldous Huxley was working with Walt Disney on scripts for this project in the 40s. The original idea was for a cartoon version of Alice embedded in a flesh and blood episode from Lewis Carroll's real life. Uh, Huxley's mother, Julia Arnold, was one of the little girls that Carroll used to enjoy photographing and to whom he told the Alice stories originally. Uh, so this was obviously a project that was very close to Huxley, but Disney found the work to be too intellectual and it was not used. Huxley received no credit on the finished picture. Yeah, I mm. suppose that makes sense. Yeah, it was just a just a really weird idea of the the, um, the Huxley <laughs> Disney combination um, that that could have been. Uh, I think it would have probably been a bit too dark, uh, <laughs> potentially. Um, finally. <clears throat> Uh, besides Alice, uh, Catherine Beaumont is also known for voicing Wendy Darling in Peter Pan, which, Aaron, uh, you picked up on straight away as soon as this started. Because there's one I've seen, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Beaumont um, was asked to continue voicing the two characters in later Disney projects until her retirement in 2005. Uh, both characters have since been voiced by Hinden Walsh. Um, yeah, no, it was, it's interesting. Um... Like she's just got a very distinctive voice, doesn't she? Um, and she's still with us, actually. She's um, 
retired, as you say, say Stephen, but she is still with us. Um, and I think um, Disney originally hired her because he was looking for a British actress that American audiences could understand, mm. which apparently is harder than you think. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess he just didn't have Julie Andrews at that time. But uh... <laughs> yeah, fair point. Fair point. Yeah. Um, but yes. Was, no, I... well, sorry. Was Peter Pan? Peter Pan was made after this film, right? It was. Released, it was. Yeah. Uh, in 1953, so two years after this film. Because she sounded older in this film than she did in Peter Pan, which is obviously great acting. But mm. I just I noticed that. Okay. Yeah. Well. Yeah. When we do get to Peter Pan and uh, all the joy that comes with reviewing that particular film, uh, mm. we, because uh, there's some interesting, and by interesting I mean troubling depictions uh, in that film. But when we get yes. to it, we'll we'll do a voice comparison of uh, Wendy and Alice and see how we do. But uh, that's the end of the trivia, which means that uh, the only thing left for us to do is to score the film. And Aaron, you get to go first because it was your first time watching. Alice in Wonderland, what score would you give this film out of 10? Okay, I'm going to give it three rocking horse flies out of 10. Three. Oh, so, wait, sorry. That's, sorry, I thought it was out of five. That's really bad. Again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give it six rocking horse flies out of 10. Okay, so you enjoyed it, but, but not, not overly enjoyed it, I guess. Yes, I thought it was well made, wasn't for me. Okay. Uh, what about yourself, Carmen? Yeah, I, I would agree. I'm going to give it six creepy umbrella vultures out of ten. <laughs> yeah, I, look, it's... I didn't really love it either, um, but I, I think it's because there's a lot of really great little bits of this film, um, which, which are really good. I love the sequence with uh, the the caterpillar and just how rude he is, but but also like that interaction uh, between him and Alice, the, the tea party scene I think works really well. There's lots of great ideas that the dog that sweeps the path up with his face and his tail front and back is just lovely, but it doesn't really knit together into a, like a cohesive narrative that I really have any investment in. I, I didn't particularly care if Alice got out. Um, I mean, possibly because I know that she does um, because I've seen this film as a kid, but it, it didn't really pull me in in the way that other um, films have done uh, of, of this nature. We, we did Labyrinth quite recently on this show, which is very similar to Alice in Wonderland in a lot of ways. And I feel as though that film did a slightly better job of making me care about our protagonist from the real world than this film has. So, um, but, but it's, it's, it's worth a watch. Um, but you know, maybe walk, don't run, I guess, uh, is where I'm at with this one. So I'm going to give it, um, I'm going to give it five half teacups out of 10, uh, because it was, yeah. it was fine, but it was, it was nothing more than that. Uh, and that brings us to the end of this review of Alice in Wonderland. Carmen and Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Thank you for having us. And for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening in. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, Thank you so much. Uh, we're, we're glad that you enjoyed it. And uh, if you want to tell us that you enjoyed it, why there's several ways for you to do that. Um, we can be subscribed to on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify. I'm sure you already know that. That's probably how you've got this episode. But you can also review us there as well. You can leave a little review saying, I love this, or um, they were right. 
Don't do Edwin impressions anymore, though. Whatever you want to put, <laughs> you can put that there. Um, but leave those ratings in places like iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud because it helps other people find us and know if this program is for them or not. Um, we are also available on Facebook. You can have very direct contact with us there. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club on Facebook and leave us a message there or whatever you'd like. Um, and of course, there is our Patreon. Um, if you want to become a, a member of the Cinema Catch-Up Club Patreon, you can do it for as little as a dollar a month and for as much as you want. Uh, just find us by searching for the Cinema Catch-Up Club on Patreon or use the web address patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast. But that's all for this week. So until next time, Goodbye. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com. Beautiful. I was trying to think of some kind of witty going out phrase there. But yeah, that was all right. I really could not. There, there, isn't, there isn't really one. People don't do goodbyes in this film. They just kind of, she just no. walks off or gets thrown away. They just kind of scream at each other and leave. Yeah, there are no goodbyes. <laughs> I think it would have just been if we'd all just started going, a uh, very merry and birthday to you, to me, to you. To me? And it just fades to out. A uh, very merry and <laughs> birthday to us, to me, to you, to you. Uh, ba, 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 ba.